As a slave in the emperor's palace, I had authority over all my master's other slaves and most of his free men. I had my own money in my master's cash box. I had a library of my own, a collection of texts in my alcove that I carefully packed into their own cases whenever my master moved households. I not only could read and write, I could read and write in most of the significant languages of the empire. My master had paid good money for it to be so. Some day he meant to make a gift of me to his brother, and then, as the next emperor's personal slave, I would be one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in all the empire. Well, he's got ambition. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And I'm Blythe. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to help you recover from Return of the Thief. It's March 21st, 2021, and today we're discussing Chapter 1 of Thick as Thieves! Thick as Thieves! Woo! Finally! I love comments so much. Finally, Thick as Thieves time! <laughs> the first time I read this book, I was like, meh, whatever. And then the second time I read it, I loved it. Yeah, kind of similarly. Yeah. I really wanted Jen back. Um, I was already bummed with, like, conspiracy. Like, exactly. not enough Jen! Um... So I definitely, I, you know, I, I think I didn't read that much ahead of time about Thick as Thieves. Like, I don't think I really saw previews. So I, like, vaguely knew it wasn't, like, it, it was, like, set somewhere else. Um, and then I started reading it and I got, you know, a few chapters and I was like, okay, I love Comet now. Yeah, same thing for me. I went in expecting to get what we pretty much got out of Return of the Thief, like with Jen. A lot of the time we get the whole conclusion of the series and then it was spent, you know, entirely in a different country with someone we've never seen. <laughs> so, but I loved it on the second read. Yeah. You can just approach it for the story that it is yeah. instead of the story that you were expecting. Exactly. Our good friends Kermit and Costco. <laughs> Costco and Kmart. <laughs> I, think, I think I stole that joke from someone. That's not an original Blythe joke. And I love that Kermit opens up his whole narrative with a quote. What's what is that type of opening quote called in an actual book? I'm sure you guys know. I don't know. Epigraph? Is it an epigraph? Yes. Epigraph. epigraph. Okay. Thank you. If a man who claims to see the future is a fool, how much more so the man who believes he can control it? We think we steer the ship of fate, but all of us are guided by unseen stars. Anocletus. In a <clears throat> and the stars are literally unseen in Comet's case. I always assume he's like about as nearsighted as I am, maybe a little more. So I guess I can see stars without yeah. my glasses on, but they are definitely a blur. Oh, I can't see them. <laughs> That's, this is actually my one of my biggest beefs with the entire series is I feel like they should probably at least be like starting to have lenses around now at this level of tech and yet comet never gets glasses right yeah mm. you would think that if they have pocket watches and guns th they would have glasses yeah. it's like i know i know it's a small detail to like beef about and that i think the fandom does like overdo it a little talking about the glasses thing but also please just give him glasses and that um that uh Enoclitus Enoclitus is not a real guy. Sometimes, um you know, she when, when she references people like like literature, it's kind of a mix of 
things that are real historical people, um, made up people, things that are obviously analogs for real things, things that aren't. Uh, and this one is just uh, a made up person. Do you mean yeah. to tell Helen me, Troy? Do you mean to tell me Archimedes couldn't balance olives on his nose? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Camet starting with an epigraph is really starting the framing of the story, letting us know that he's he's not thinking of this as some little informal packet of, packet of notes for Relius. This is you know a scholarly worker. Yeah, I mean, it's so different from from Conspiracy of Kings, which is very much like, I am Sophos and I am telling the story to Helen, yeah. who is a person that I care about. And it's this kind of intimate retelling. This is very public. This is very official. Eleven days and the Tamets removed from the narrative. Oh, Megan, yeah. what did they do? Redacted. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I feel like at this point, it's like so much because because I can see like Jen writing the thief being like oh ho, ho, I'm gonna do this but also it's like he's writing it for Helen so like she knows who he is he doesn't need to explain that um and kind of similarly with um god I just almost called Sophos Costas uh with Sophos in conspiracy but I feel like I feel like I don't know, I guess, again, part of it is that Comet is, like, writing for an audience who already knows all of the big reveals, but it does, it feels a little bit to me like Comet is, like, also doing this on purpose as, like, a literary device. Yeah, yeah. I think he, I feel like he has a very specific view of himself that he wants to present to the reader. He spends this whole chapter going into such detail, like in the opening quote about, like, this is all the power I have, this is the authority to make them see him how he saw himself yeah. at that point. I think what uh, Sophos and Kamet have in common is that they're they're trying to tell the story and they're trying to tell the story in a particular way for a particular audience, but I think the ways in which they are not quite aware of their own like biases or unreliability kind of manifest like there are things mm -hmm. that Kamet deliberately leaves out or changes or or emphasizes but there's also like this chapter feels so much like these mm -hmm. are the things that he tells himself right to make himself okay with his own life content warning for discussion of abuse skip to the 10 minute mark to pass this you know he opens it saying i hated being beaten and then goes on to explain to the reader why it was his, his own fault, quote unquote. Nothing could make me feel so stupid and so angry at myself. It did my authority no good to be seen like this. So it's a defense mechanism to make him feel like he has more control over this situation than he really does. Yeah, and he doesn't focus on the experience of the beating. He focuses on, oh, well, it was yeah. embarrassing. Yeah, he really afterwards. like glosses mm. over a lot of that stuff. It did my authority no good to be seen with my face covered in blood. Just casually dropping in that his face is covered in blood. And that he assumes that this statue is broken, but he hints he assumes it's broken because it was broken yeah. on his ribs. You know, related to that, he spends a lot of this chapter dwelling on what he clearly thinks of as the positives. You know, all of this authority he has is obviously... Um, you know, part of how he sees himself. 
he dwells on all of the knowledge he's amassed, the power he has right now. But it's also, as we kind of see throughout the course of the book, it's so tenuous. You know, he's he's talking Mm -hmm. about how, like, oh, I'm going to be so powerful and I have all of this, you know, even though I'm a slave, I have all this power. And it's like, I mean, yeah, but also no. Um, Because, you know, they... I mean, immediately he runs away and that makes sense for, like, why they're chasing him and stuff. But it's just, it's so obvious, especially because it's Nahusarash, it's so obvious that um, as much power as he does have, it still could be taken away instantly, like, without even that much thought or effort on the part of, like, Nahusarash or the Emperor or whatever. And, like, he's trying, like, he wants to make himself indispensable. By being, like, he's so skilled and he knows so much, but that doesn't, like, he still can't make himself safe. Mm -hmm. And Layla says to him in this chapter, you handle him well, referring to Nehuzerosh, and he narrates, I did usually handle my master better than I had that day, and I was proud of my skill. To know how to and I mean, Nehuzeresh doesn't exactly strike me as like the most reasonable, even-tempered guy ever. So, it probably is a, in a horrible, <laughs> twisted way, it kind of is a skill to be proud of. In that, Nehuzeresh is probably a hard guy to handle. The way that he thinks about his life is very much: this is a situation that I know how to manage. Like it's the, the experience of being in an abusive situation and being like, yeah, but if I leave, then I don't know what I'm going to do. And there's gender in this chapter. Yeah, and there's, all over yeah this there's a lot of gender and power stuff. Does this book pass the Bechdel test? I don't think so. I don't think so. Which, you know, the Bechdel test is not a be-all, end-all, and it's a book about two dudes who are like alone for a large chunk of the book so it makes sense that it wouldn't pass and i'm and this is one of the chapters maybe the chapter with well i don't know definitely one of the chapters with the most women in it there's only like how many three women in this book i don't know like yeah as is the case with queen Sif as a whole i think um the stuff about men yeah is full of gender like there's there's not a sense of um men are neutral and women are gender yeah all of all of the men i think pretty much all of the men in this series mm-hmm. like are like sort of attention is brought to their gender in the same way that's often brought to like women in yeah fantasy books and the the women i think their gender is also very important mm-hmm. um it's sort of everyone's gender is, like, equally marked, I guess, and equally, like, noticeable. And here in this chapter, we get two different... We get views of of Nehuzeresh's wife, and then the... They're called dancing girls that he owns. And so the, the parts about <laughs> his wife uh, is Kamet narrating, my master... Was fighting with his wife the entire time that they were back on the estate for a year. She had been, unsurprisingly, unenthusiastic about his attempts to marry the Aetolian queen. <laughs> and if Hemsha was far away from the capital, at least it was equally far away from his Girl wife. Boss. Uh, implying, I guess, that Kamet doesn't get on <laughs> with her either. 
The steward was trying to keep my master's wife's expensive in expenses in check, and she was very strong-minded. I wonder if... I don't know... I don't remember if we know this, but does Irene know that he's married back in Queen of Atolia? I'm, like, yeah. I don't think it's mentioned, but it's mentioned, yeah. like, you know, they had ships coming, and she knew the ships were coming and how they were provisioned before they even left the harbor. So, like, that's a pretty big thing for her not to know about the ambassador. I, I can't imagine... It would be off her radar. <laughs> yeah. Content warning for discussion of sexual abuse. Skip to the 14-minute mark to skip this. But of course we have um, all of these indications that people of... Uh, that, that that women of Nahusa Resh's, like social class are really powerful and have uh, independence. And then we have Layla. And it's very specifically gendered this type of enslavement that she's in she had been one of my master's dancing girls when she fell out of favor i had persuaded my master that she should stay with the household and Kamet had to do that persuading and so like Kamet, i think both because of his closeness to nahusharash and his gender he has a little bit more leverage um and a little bit more agency than she does. Also, the specific uh, mm. description of them as dancing girls instead of dancing women. I mean, I think we kind of know that they're at least somewhat young because Layla, like, aged out of it. But exactly, we don't know how yeah. young they are. A matron over the other Like, girls. she might not even be that old. She might be in, like, I don't know, her 30s or 40s. 20s even, who knows? And uh, I should see to the girls, they'll need to know he's in a mood. Yeah. So... That's sort of a an open implication. I can't believe this plan works where they make him think Nahusarash is dead. Right? Like, oh my god, I can't believe that, like, Costas never slipped up, that, like, Layla didn't, you know, give it away somehow, that no one, that Comet, no one ever, Comet never realized, like, oh man, no one in this town is talking about how Nahusarash is dead. That's kind of weird. Nothing. Like, I feel like it's contingent on so many things going right. Yeah. And it, it seems like, like, um, Imacook and Annika are, like, helping them, uh, like, and maybe keeping yeah. Comet from finding out, like, a little bit. But, oh my god, it, it was so tenuous, and it worked. I was, I did not pick up on it at all. Um, Costas didn't know, though, right? Oh, maybe he didn't. That's right. Yeah, I think he he wasn't he in on lie. this, so that answers uh, one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he's like super dead. Comet. Yes, I saw it. No, I mean I didn't see it because they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> um, quick, I'm gonna tell you a funny story about my king to distract you. One time I punched him in the face. It was awesome. And they're mostly trying to avoid other people when they do see yeah. other people. Yeah. Mm. And not ask any leading questions about, I don't know, politics <laughs> from the capital. Even if he keeps saying, like, oh, my position is super secure, I have all this power. Like, I think he does know to some degree that that's not necessarily true and, in fact, is not true. And so even if he maybe hasn't, like, consciously thought out, like, an escape plan or, like, a things went south plan... Um, you know, he's probably heard other slaves speculating about it. He's probably thought, oh, man, you know, if I wanted to escape, I could totally do this and stuff like that. So I think he's, like, more mm. prepared than he thinks he is. But 
he doesn't like want to acknowledge it in a way because I don't think he wants to acknowledge that this is something that he could have even thought about at all or like something that he could have even done a good job at because he's he does a pretty good job actually of getting out yeah and we know he did make that plan once right with Marin right yeah Yeah, it's something that like he's maybe continued to idly daydream about but in a way that's like of course I would never yeah it makes me think of that line from his like one or two scenes in Queen of Vitolia where it says Kemet longed to leave Nehuzerish but dared not on the ship Mm. and we get one of the uh, very rare physical descriptions of characters in the series um, he says that Costas looked like a typical Atolian with sandy brown hair, a broad face and light colored eyes and says he was you know, huge. Comet he looked like a soldier. Spe- yeah. <laughs> like an ox. Comet does spend <laughs> a lot of this book cake. describing what Costas looks like semi-regularly. Comet. The Atolian <laughs> was so hot that it had to affect our cover story. The Atolian bent seductively <laughs> over the pan as he tinned it. This is just objective. Mm-hmm. For possible. I do love the like <laughs> I do love the like reveal between King of Atolia and Thickest Thieves that Costas is secretly like smoking hot. Like I know this could just be like Comet's like <laughs> filter, but I choose to believe that A, Comet is attracted to him, but also B, Costas is just like one of the hottest dudes on the peninsula. <laughs> um, and so Comet is just like, oh my god, this is the hottest Atolian I've ever seen. Hey, we will send our hottest one. <laughs> <laughs> that would have lent a lot of cre- more credence to those rumors about him and Jen. Yeah, like, why yeah. else would so- why else would this one specific guy be promoted to lieutenant? Yeah, it's the same as Legaris. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And Costas just like like Legaris is the hot one, so mm-hmm. Costas is like, well, I can't be the hot one. I must just be normal. <laughs> we can't have two hot ones. <laughs> Maybe it's like, wasn't there some like. Uh, ancient king who like chose his army to be entirely tall hot dudes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Maybe Irene and Relius were doing that when choosing the guard. Because <laughs> now with the return of the thief, we know Relius's type. So he probably well, one of his types at least. So he probably was just being like Irene, Irene, pick the really hot buff guys for the guard. Uh, the Potsdam Giants was the Prussian Infantry Regiment Number no. 6, composed of taller-than-average soldiers. The regiment was founded in 1675 and dissolved in 1806. That's a long time, <laughs> <Yeah>. my dudes. <laughs> we will send our tall boys to kill mm-hmm. you. But yeah, I just, I just love the reveal of, like, Costas. Secret hottie. He tried to obtain the tall soldiers by any means, including recruiting them from the armies of other countries. The Emperor of Austria, Russian Tsar Peter the Great, and even the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire sent him tall soldiers to encourage <laughs> friendly relations. Oh, friendly relations. Is that what the kids are calling it these days? <laughs> pay, pay was high, but not all giants were content. <laughs> oh, wonderful way to word it, Wikipedia. Jen was just like, Wait, I know Comet. Okay, we have to send someone who is, like, a beefcake and who he will feel really bad about lying to and tricking. Costas, you're a himbo. I have a job for you. 
Content warning for discussion of sexual abuse. Skip to 2220 to pass. But yeah, it's, um, to talk more about gender and depressing topics, um, part of what really, like, interests me, I guess, besides just, oh my god, Casas was a beefcake all along, um, in actual serious notes, uh, what I find really interesting about, like, explicitly part of the reason that Costas is here is because he's in danger in Atolia because he's seen as the king's favorite, like, really drives home how much of this book and how much of, like, Comet's narration is really concerned with, like, sex and power. Yeah. Um, like, with multiple points throughout the series. Yeah, there's I feel like Go Decker is such an important character and that's such mm-hmm. an important scene and we shouldn't talk about it too much today because we're going to get there. But even in even in this chapter we get a a implication, I guess, that Nehuzerus does sexually abuse Kamet. Even on my very very first read of Thick as Thieves, I read those pages with the line about admiring the bruises and the line about when he was done with me, I was shaking and sick, especially the when he was done with me. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I I am picking up on a vibe and I hate it. I wish I wasn't <laughs> doing textual analysis because it really does read to me and always has read to me like Nahusaresh is sexually abusing him and Kama is like leaving the main portion of that out but he yeah. then spends a lot of the book thinking about like oh our i know i just joked about it but he does spend a lot of the book thinking about like oh because costas is handsome if our cover story is that we're slaves clearly it has to be that he was like our mistress's favorite or whatever it is that he comes up with and then the mm. whole thing with godecker and stuff as well There's so much, like, about the body. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I have anything specific to say about that in general right now. But, like, thinking about this book and, like, Kamet as somebody who, um, he he doesn't have agency over his own body uh and like how this book is a like a physical journey uh and he is being stolen like an object but it's also his journey to freedom yeah like it ends up choosing to steal himself kind of and like the end of the end of the king of atolia when uh jen gets naked and there's so much about like how what he has experienced is written on his body he has all these scars Mm -hmm. yeah and also i think another thing that's relevant to the whole like presence of the body is that the book is literally kicked off by something that only happens because comet is really nearsighted yeah and he's he's mentions that the entire course of this narrative would have been different had he not been nearsighted Mm. which is you know it's yeah, I was I was also just going to say about that. You know, the reason he's nearsighted is because Nehuzerish 
wrecked his vision through negligence pretty much you know Mm -hmm. if he had if he had been given better light and better working conditions etc he would have had good eyesight and then this never would have happened yeah yeah like and also i feel like it's relevant that this this book and this chapter start off on a physical note with Kamet in pain Mm. you know yeah it starts off based in the body Oh, I just thought of a connection to Return of the Thief, which is um, that bit where Jen is talking about how he doesn't want his hand back because nothing, none of this like would have happened. He would be in a different place. He would be a different person if he still had his hand. Really, okay. I think, links a lot to this book being kicked off by Comet not seeing Costas coming because he's nearsighted. Because he also, like is disabled at least partially because of an injustice or bad thing that happened to him. Megan Whale and Turner's take on disability is she's building it into the narrative in a way that makes sense, in a way that's still respectful, but not in a way where she's trying to take it away. In a weird way, reminds me of, like, person-first language versus identity-first language discourse. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because it's like, like whenever has... whenever other authors write disabled characters, they're writing characters with disabilities. When Megan's writing a disabled character, she's writing a disabled character. And I love that. Yeah. I love that. I feel like it's really a big part of his agency mm-hmm. as a character. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about glasses earlier. I... This makes me a little bit glad that we don't see him get glasses exactly. Just not not because I don't want him as a as a fictional person to not be able to see, but because, you know, in so much of fiction that shows disabled people, especially in fantasy, you know, you know, this this disabling event or whatever you have it is used for, you know, the emotional yeah. quick shock value, but it's immediately taken away by you know it's like from a 21st century healing i don't know futuristic magic yeah and his his vision might not be perfect even if he did get glasses right especially because yeah i personally my glasses don't fix everything same as someone with a blind eye they help but (laughs) there would be still probably a bunch of nuance to include even if he did have glasses so but it is good that that his disability enhances the story. Yeah, yes, that's the really you know? good way to put it, enhances. Like with all of her disabled characters, you fundamentally could not tell the story that she tells if you magically cured them or if they were never written as disabled in the first place. I recently read Eagle of the Ninth because she always talks about how that inspired her with respect to disability stuff. Right. Um, so Eagle of the Ninth... Yeah, Eagle of the Ninth, I will say, disappointed me in many aspects, but the disability stuff was not one. His leg is injured, um, and it does heal, and he can get around, but he is never going to heal up to the point where he can rejoin the army because he's never going to be able to handle, like, really long marches or, you know, like, having to pivot in a weird way in battle or whatever. Um, But he is able to, like, trek around Britain, he just, you know, he has to ride a horse or he has to, like, take shorter trips or whatever. Um, and so, and he, in Eagle of the Ninth, the character whose name I can't even remember, because uh, I felt pretty eh about that book. Um, 
in Eagle of the Ninth, it is also kicked off. The whole plot is kicked off because he can't, he gets kicked out of the army because his leg got really badly injured. Megan Will and Turner has talked before about how influential that book was here. And I, th- I feel yeah, like this, this one is really written as like a love letter to Eagle of the Ninth. Six of Crows. Six of Crows. Note that every single character I'm naming where I think their disability was like very well integrated into the book is male. Um, but Kaz in Six of Crows has um, a, I think, knee injury that did not handle well. And he uses a cane. And I think the author of Six of Crows is disabled. That's also something that's true about these books is that we have um, major disabled characters, but they are men. Which I feel like is kind of maybe more of a reflection of... Well, I don't know. I mean, we just don't have that many woman characters at all. Yeah. (laughs) You know? I would argue that Irene does read as deeply neurodivergent to me, but that's not like really confirmed yeah and also some of that might just be projection <clears throat> and like like some of the stuff with helen is like um i think fits into the general theme of like changes to the body over time um in that uh her nose is broken and it affects how she looks but yeah her and sophos yeah yeah her and sophos both That's chapter one. Next time, the journey begins. Send us your comments, questions, and thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production by Ms. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Anywhere Podcasts, all of Empire warns that this polyamorous relationship could expand to cover all of the Hephaestian Peninsula by 1600. <laughs>